Hello, and welcome to Overcoming, the companion podcast for my new book, After Trauma, which is out now wherever you get your books. So after the intro episode that we did last week, where I just sort of gave an overview of how this book came to be, my writing process, what getting the book deal was like, and all of that, um, we're going to dive into the first chapter, which I am really, really excited to do. You're going to hear me flipping the pages of this book here um, as we go together. So grab your copies of After Trauma, and let's get into it. So first, before we get into the actual chapter, um, I want to talk a little bit about the foreword and the introduction. So if you have seen the book or if you've seen any of the publicity we did around it, you will know that on the cover um, under my name, it says Forward by Taylor Schumann. And Taylor um, is this amazing woman who I am so lucky to call a friend and and a uh, sort of colleague in the trauma survivor space. And I was so honored that Taylor was willing to write the foreword for this story. And if you see in the first line of the foreword, it says, before I was shot on April 12th, 2013, I hadn't experienced trauma. And April 12th, completely coincidentally, was the day that this book was published, April 12th, 2022. And so when that date was chosen, chosen, again, it was a complete coincidence before Taylor was attached. Uh, When I saw that date, I just thought, how wonderful and beautiful that, you know, Taylor telling her story um, in print um, in this book, you know, how wonderful that it it gets to be out in the world on her alive day. So um, Taylor's foreword means so much to me and the words that she chose to talk about this book, um, I will just cherish forever. And so Taylor, thank you for your time and your energy and your generosity with, uh, with writing this foreword for this book. And then we have the author's note, and I did want to say, especially for today in chapter one, uh, I did want to give a content warning for sexual assault. We are going to be discussing that um, just sort of briefly as my own experience with sexual assault takes place in the chapter one of this book. And so then we get to the introduction, and it basically describes this day where, you know, I'd been working on what would become after for seven years. Um, but for whatever reason on that day, May 22nd, 2017, I felt like I was so close to figuring out what this book was actually supposed to be. Like what, what's the thread? What's the lens? What's the sort of parameters that I'm telling this story through? What's it bound by? What am I, you know, just trying to get some clarity on it. And as I explained in the introduction, while I was trying to figure that out, sitting at my dining room table in Philadelphia, um, the news broke about the bombing um, just after Ariana Grande got off stage at her concert in England. And so I just sort of spoke about that day in the intro and how it gave me words and clarity for what I wanted after trauma to be. Um, Here it says, after trauma is not about focusing on suffering, but on what comes next. It's about how ordinary people find the strength to keep going after all sorts of trauma. And that's really what I was interested in, this concept of overcoming and how it looked for me. But knowing that I can obviously only tell my story from my perspective and seeing those girls running out of that arena on that night really like light bulb in my brain let me know that I want to tell other people's stories too. And also in the introduction, I wrote about 
myself as a little girl, um, my experiences as a child that I was very carefree and cherished and just had this privileged sense of security and safety that had never been challenged before. And in the intro, I I began this thread that I don't wrap up until I believe chapter eight, I think it's at the end of chapter eight, uh, where I talk about how there was a moment for me, um, the moment is described a little bit in more detail in my first book, Where Hope Lives, but there was a moment for me in all of this where I had to send parts of myself away because those parts were too innocent and they were too free and they were being, like that version of me couldn't exist in the world that I found myself in. I needed to send those parts of me away to become the kind of person I needed to survive what I was going through. And I hoped that whenever I was safe enough and ready, I could just sort of call that innocence and that freedom back. But that ended up taking a lot longer than I than I thought it would, but uh, we got there eventually. So I sort of started that thread there in the introduction that I would find the other end of uh, later later on. And in the introduction, I also started this thread of um, this concept that trauma separates by design. It leaves us divided into our before and after, a split that demands to be noticed. Our hurt demands to be acknowledged. I also learned that the place of trauma, the literal or figurative place of that disconnection, can be the place where we come back to our past selves and reemerge. It can be the new foundation we stand on. A reconciliation, a rebirth. We can come home to ourselves and find our afters. I did eventually. And then when we get to part one, the page that says part one, and the quote there by the fray, um, I have had that quote from their song, Be Still, in every version of every manuscript of this book since whenever that song came out. Um, I used to have an app on my phone called PTSD Coach, and I believe the app was designed to allow people to have really quick access to their resources or like I call the opposite of a trigger an anchor. So like my version of of an anchor and you can put like videos and songs and quotes and things in there that like if you're having a moment and you need quick access to those anchors, that app allows you that. And so when I had that app on my phone lots of years ago, I only had one song loaded into it and it was this song from the fray called Be Still. And I would love to ask them someday, like, what, who did you write this song for? What perspective did you write this song for? And I could see how maybe it would be like a parent to a child. Um, But to me, this is God speaking to me. Like, this is a, like a reverse prayer. (laughs) Like a prayer would be like me, you know, talking to God or opening up my mind or quieting my mind to hear um, what God is telling me. That's what I think this is. It's God speaking to me and telling me to be still. And essentially that no matter what happens, I'm never alone. And so I put this in part one because part one is sort of the my walk down into the valley. Part two is my walk back up. And so there was no other... There was no other quote that could have gone in this place. It had to be be still from the fray. And so now we get into the first chapter. And chapter one is called Forgive Yourself for Not Seeing It Coming. And 
when I was choosing the themes for each chapter, I was working with my editor and we were trying to decipher what are the main lessons on overcoming that I learned that I would want to tell other people. And there were so many more than ended up being fit into just these 10 chapters, but we really narrowed it down to like the the heaviest hitters. And forgive yourself for not seeing it coming. For me, when I was reflecting on the hundreds and hundreds of conversations that I'd had with other trauma survivors, there's always that element to it. Like later on in the book, we get to like my version of forgiveness um, for the people who hurt me. Um, I guess I don't necessarily believe, I don't know. I, I, I talk about it as dropping the rope. You drop the rope that ties you to the person that hurt you. It doesn't mean you forget, like it doesn't mean what they did is okay. Accountability still counts. It doesn't mean you have to be friends with them or see them, but you can drop the rope that is binding you to them and that can just free up your mind to do other things. But I think you first have to to drop the end of the rope that is tied to you blaming yourself for not seeing it coming. And in the beginning of this chapter, so I chose this quote from Christopher Marcus that I actually, the only reason I know about this quote and and people will be like, hey, I know that quote is because it was in Captain America. Um, I don't remember which one, but it's the one, maybe it's Winter Soldier. I don't know. But it's the one where Captain America and Anthony Mackie's character, who I can't remember his name right now, they're at the funeral of Peggy. And Peggy's niece gets up to speak, who's an agent and Captain America didn't know that they were related, blah, blah. And she says this quote. And as soon as I heard it, I was like, oh, well, that that needs to go in whatever whatever this document is that I'm writing before after was after. I need this quote in there. So it says, compromise where you can, where you can't, don't. Even if everyone is telling you that something wrong is something right. Even if the whole world is telling you to move, it is your duty to plant yourself like a tree, look them in the eye, and say, no, you move. And I just thought that was very apt for this chapter. It was very apt for my experience. And, you know, chapter one is is our longest chapter in the book. Um, it's both sort of a summary of my earlier experiences, some that were um, discussed in more detail in Where Hope Lives, but it's also, you know, these stories told in a new way. And that sort of was one of my my major tasks and one of the heaviest lifts in this story is having after trauma be completely complete. Like if no, if you hadn't read Where Hope Lives, you can read after trauma and get a complete picture of what happened. Um, but it is also not repetitive for people who have read Where Hope Lives and want to, you know, just get like a new take on this story. And so that was like my heaviest lift and my editor were always going back and being like, yeah, you didn't explain that well enough. You know, you're expecting that people who read it have read Where Hope Lives. So that was was a task that I had. And so chapter one really sees uh, the majority of those early experiences. Um hopefully told in a new way. And so this beginning piece um, that begins, you know, I have been able to recite my story with crystal clear accuracy for over a decade now. 
And then that ends um, on page four. I shed the shadow by going back to the beginning, by going back to the place where I'd lost her, my younger self. Those initial couple chapters were written really close to the end of my edits being due. Um, Originally, this chapter just started there at the bottom of page four. It was the summer of 2014. And I just felt like, and I'm sure my editor did as well, just felt like we needed a bit of... We needed a bit of an overview. We needed more of like current Allie speaking to the reader. And so I wrote this, those first couple paragraphs sort of in one shot, which is really fantastic when that happens. Like if you're a writer or an artist at all, you know that, you know, that creativity that will allow you to write, like just to bang out a couple of really good chapters, uh, in a row like that doesn't happen all the time most of the time you're just like trying to figure out what you're trying to say and I always think of a quote from my favorite tv show of all time the west wing Toby is the uh communications director at the white house and his whole job is like you know controlling the message of the white house and of the president and he writes the president's speeches and when he's writing the state of the union people keeping like Toby how's it going are we done did you do it what's going on and he always says um you can't rush these things. It's not like taking a hammer to a nail. And that's exactly it. It's not like a math problem where you sit down, you solve it, and then it's done. You have to work and work and work to get to what you're trying to say. So when I read these first couple of paragraphs in the chapter, I know that for whatever reason, I I tapped into that creativity there and just wrote those four chapters as they are, or those paragraphs as they are, like right in a row, which I'm always grateful when that happens. Um, and then as we go along on page six, I really loved including that middle paragraph about my great-grandfather, Carl James Peterson. Um, I always thought that I had no connection to the fire service in my family um, because when you look at just a couple generations back, I I don't. I am the first. Um, but I loved, I loved learning about him and his role um, in a critical incident in 1970 on Easter Sunday. Um, when there was a fire that killed um, five firefighters and he was burned. And and, um, I just was so surprised when I heard that because I thought that firefighting just sort of came out of nowhere. Um, And then I wrote about my first day in fire gear on page seven. And that was explored a lot in, um, in Where Hope Lives. And I loved getting to tell it in a new way. You know, I've been talking a lot Um, in interviews and in the book launch party that we had for After Trauma, talking a lot about the differences in Where Hope Lives and After Trauma in myself. You know, there's 12 years between the pub dates of the two books. And I really enjoyed looking back on this time, even as hard as it was. And as I keep saying to people, chapter one is a doozy. Chapter one is a lot. It's heavy. It is packed full of difficult experiences. But it was an important way to intro this story, uh, to get it all in the first chapter and really set up the story that we're trying to tell. So on page nine, there's a line that I wrote on the middle of the page that I wrote in its entirety probably about 10 years ago. And all these words in this book, you know, they came from me, obviously. So many of them came from my journals as I write every single day and I'm always sort of reflecting back on my experiences but I wrote this line 
So it's in the middle paragraph that says, But I also learned to resent my body and view it in a way I never had before. This new environment told me it was too feminine, that it gave me away, that it had no place in this masculine world. And then here is the sentence that I wrote a decade ago. I hated how I couldn't hide my body because some men saw it and wanted to own it, to dominate it, because it was way too much and yet nowhere near enough. And every once in a while, like I talked about in the beginning of this chapter where those couple paragraphs just came out of my brain and onto the page and did not change, as soon as I wrote that line, I hated how I couldn't hide my body because some men saw it and wanted to own it, to dominate it because it was way too much and yet nowhere near enough. I don't know if if you're a writer or an artist and if you feel this way, but to me, I can only describe it as relief. When I can get something out of my brain and onto the page and the like, the exact thing that I'm trying to say, there's this sense of relief that there it is. That's what I'm trying to say. There it is. And that sentence was one of it. That sort of dichotomy of it was way too much and yet nowhere near enough. And I think what I meant by that was... My body felt too much like the way that it looked didn't allow me to blend because no matter what I wore, which became oversized everything, sweatshirts, sweatpants, even in the dead of summer, just trying to hide myself, it was never, it never worked. I always still felt naked when people were looking at me because of the comments that they would make. And then the yet nowhere near enough piece, I think, was my younger self feeling resentful for my smaller, like slimmer frame because I just simply didn't have enough weight behind me to do some of the skills that I would later go on to learn new techniques that would allow me to do it anyway. But I just, my my muscle mass was not um, distributed in my body the way that it was for, for you know, the way that guys' bodies are made up. And so the way too much and yet nowhere near enough, I thought was just sort of a, a right on the money yet sort of beautiful way to express that feeling. And on page 11, I really wanted to pull back a little bit and speak from both, from both, like speak to and from the perspective of both past Ali and present Ali. And you see that in the second paragraph where I say, when I tell this part of the story in front of a crowd, I always pause right here. I want to see people's faces as they process this in real time. I want them to think about what this means, about what our world can ask of women and girls, and of what he was asking of me. They shake their heads slightly, they wrinkle their noses. The men look at me with pity, the women look at me with a knowing. And I kept trying to do that throughout this book to really pull back from the storytelling and speak directly to the reader. And that was something that I continued to um, need to do and want to do to not just be telling the, a story that happened in the past, but to be giving the reader the perspective that, you know, grown up Allie, 32 year old, almost 33 year old Allie has right now. And then on page 12, I really, it was important to me to sort of explain 
where I was coming from and why I was so easily able to reject this standard that these people were were telling me that I had to meet. And so I really wanted to explain like that all my life I'd grown up seeing my parents have a relationship where they treated each other with love and respect and that roles weren't separated into gender in my house. Everyone participated in and was allowed to be interested in anything and everything. And so when I was in this environment where all of a sudden I was being told women have to be XYZ, women have to talk and and act and, and blah, 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 XYZ, just based on that, I was able to reject it because all my life I'd been taught that, you know, women can be anything they damn well please. And then on page 14, I talk about my very first fire call. And this is something that I've explored in detail in both of my books. It's something I'm continuing to explore now. And I really wanted to and needed to begin this thread with this experience because I can draw a linear line between this call, my very first fire call, and the night after Thanksgiving 2005, to both of the businesses that I started and run now, both On the Job and Off and First Responders Care, both which have to deal with educating first responders either on their mental health or to better recognize signs of child abuse, neglect, and trafficking to help with their community's overall resilience. And this first call of mine was, I think, the most formative experience for me because not only did I learn that I have what it takes mentally and emotionally to stand in that space between someone's life and their death, um, let alone a child, which is just as tragic as it gets. I, I learned that, you know, when I write on page 16, I at no point did I want to run away from her. I wanted to run toward her, this five-year-old girl who died in this car accident, and be a part of the decisions that were being made to try to save her life. And, but not only was that part so formative, it was the the after of that for us that we didn't have any resources offered or help with processing that. And so that's the linear line I can draw between that experience and starting on the job and off 13 years later because we have courses and resources for first responders to engage in at any time of the day or night after an incident like that specifically, let alone all the other educational areas that we can speak to. So I really saw after this experience that we don't really have much for us in the terms of tailored resources, and I wanted to go on to to, to fix that, uh, which I attempted to do in, in 2018, or at least be a part of solving the problem. And then lastly, what I explored about that incident was that call solidified forever my role in the fire service. I knew that I would never walk away from it. I would always be involved in the emergency services in whatever way I possibly could. And because what I saw that night, even though there was so much going on in my world in that station, I saw people come together to try to save a child's life. And that to me was so beautiful and so honorable and such a privilege that I wanted to continue to be better and smarter and stronger and faster 
So when it did, when something did happen where it was my hands tasked with saving someone's life, it was the air in my lungs going into someone else's lungs, it was my mind that had to make the life, hopefully life-saving decisions that I would be ready. And so that really, really pushed me to always be better um, so the next time something like that happened, I could I could help. And then on page 20, um, here's where I'm going to again say content warning for sexual assault. Uh, it's not graphic and we're not going to spend too much time on it. But I do just want to say, because this originally was not in chapter one, I think it was in chapter three maybe, and my editor, who just has such a smart, brilliant vision um, for the overall story, said it needs to be in chapter one. We need to get all those big, heavy-hitting moments, we need to get them in the first chapter. So we we moved it into here. And even when we did that, I thought like, man, this chapter is a doozy. It's going to be a lot for people. It's long and it's heavy and it's hard. But I'm really happy with it as, you know, as it as it came to be. And so as I was sort of writing, writing about the situation and the circumstances, um, in the firehouse that took place in a different state, not in the one where I grew up. Um, I didn't want to just get right into what happened. I wanted to provide some education first because often people have different beliefs of what sexual assault is, whose fault it is, uh, who do we blame, etc. And so it was important for me to sort of address some of that before I got into my own experience. And so on page 24, towards the top, I sort of asked some of those questions. Um, Was this plant? Would these people have found me wherever I was in the firehouse? Had I inadvertently made it easier for them due to my location in the building when they arrived? Or was it a crime of convenience? Did they do it because they could? Did they take that action because they thought as many people who sexually assault others do, that they wouldn't be held accountable because they could just blame how drunk they were, as if that means they're innocent. So I wanted to address right there that excuse that we often hear of, oh, they were drunk, they didn't know what they were doing, or blah, blah, blah. So I wanted to address that right out of the gate. I apologize if you hear my puppy. She's very vocal today. And then I wanted to get into rape culture. I wanted to get into rape culture, and this is perhaps one of the paragraphs or sort of pieces in the first chapter that I worked the hardest on, um, just really choosing every single word carefully. So it says, rape culture is an escalating spectrum with seemingly harmless, quote harmless, microaggressive actions like rape jokes on one end and physical rape on the other. And then a bit later it says, rape culture can also be thought of as a pyramid, Every time someone expresses a sexist attitude and it is met with silence by those who hear it, the act and the response to it lay the foundation for the next step in potentially intensifying behavior. And here's the point I really wanted to hammer home. Witnesses who do nothing aren't innocent. Their silence isn't harmless. That's the glue that holds the whole thing together. And so again, I just really wanted to provide some education ahead of ahead of getting into my own experience and sort of preemptively address some reasons for disbelief that people have sometimes presented to me. Um, And then I, I also quoted this fantastic writer, Nina Alter, who told us that sexism, like all the other isms, is a problem of culture. 
And this culture is perpetuated by the choices individuals make based on the roles we've all been taught men and women, quote, should take in our society. And I felt like it was important to talk about sexism here on page 25 because that is a theme in my experience. That was one of the sort of driving uh, forces for the experiences that I had. And so, you know, there are some people who don't believe that sexism is real. And, you know, they think it's an individual problem. Um, And so I wanted to give some of that education ahead of talking about my own experiences just to try to get more of us on the same page, uh, pun intended. And then we get into the sexual assault that I experienced. Um, I've spoken about this event a lot hundreds and hundreds of times on various stages in front of various audiences. But writing it down was a whole other ballgame. Putting it into black and white in a book that, you know, I can't go back and change these words. Um, I worked really hard just to have it feel as accurate as possible and to go back in my own mind and make sure that I was accurately portraying my thought process as it was happening. And so, like, at the bottom of page 26, I I talk about, like, my memories of what happened and then remembering that there really was, like, a moment of brief resignation. Just a thought of, just get it over with. Like, I had been told so many times and insinuated and joked about that if I did not willingly give it it being unprotested access to my body, that at some point someone was going to try, they were just going to take it. Like my consent did not matter, was not a factor. And so as horrible as it is for 32-year-old Allie to acknowledge for littler Allie, I was always expecting it. I was always expecting it. And now, I mean, that's horrifying to me that I ever that that was ever the way that I lived, that that was the environment that I found myself in. But that was where that moment of brief resignation came from. It was just sort of like, I didn't know, you know, I didn't know it would be there, but I knew it would happen somewhere. And on page 27, I wrote, and when it came, when it was literally upon me, I just wanted it over with. I wanted it over with so I could leave the fire service with a flip of my middle finger and never, ever return. I wanted to light the cage of expectation on fire and burn it all down. But then I remember, this is, you know, present Allie saying this, I remember just after that moment of resignation was an image of myself walking out of that room as like a shadow of my former self. Like if that, if what was about to happen happened, a piece of me that I could never get back would be left behind. That's what I thought in that moment. And I'd already felt so fractured that I just couldn't, I couldn't resign to another piece of me 
being left in another firehouse. And that's when I started to fight. I know that I am lucky that there were no weapons. I know that I am lucky that for me, fighting back allowed me to get away. Because so often, and as I've learned in my work with domestic violence and sexual assault survivors, fighting back often makes it more terrible and more violent. So while I am not lucky that this happened, there were factors to it that were very lucky. And now for a really long time, as I talk about on page 28, I did not have the full memory of what happened there. I did not have the full memory of where their hands went on my body. I did not have that moment of resignation. I didn't have a lot of it. And on page 29, I say, we don't always need to go back to the beginning or dig into an event to heal from it, but I needed to shovel out the shame and sadness I'd piled on top of every hurt, especially this one, to get to the root of it, the hurt of it. Only then could I allow my younger self to feel the grief she deserved to feel at the time. And then I talked about how, yes, writing had become a habit for me, saved my life that habit, but I also developed a not helpful habit, which was lying, just not telling the truth about what was happening to me there. It was too embarrassing. It was too much. I didn't want to have to stop firefighting, and I knew that if I told the truth, my parents would have obviously said, so you are done there, and you're never going back. Um... And I didn't want that. So I made the choice that 16 and 17-year-olds make, which is just to feel like everything is their burden to bear. And I kept a lot of it to myself. Um, Not all of it, but how it was affecting me, I sort of kept it to myself. And there were some bright spots. And that can make traumatic experiences hard and confusing because you can't always just color it with a broad brush. Every experience for me there wasn't all bad. And so those little bright moments gave me hope that it would get better, but those bright moments did not add up to any substantial systematic change, which was what was needed. And then I talk about the event that forced me to try to get some actual help um, from the profession that I believed could give it to me. And I went to a police officer and told him all the things that were going on. Um, And unfortunately, in this moment, that police officer chose to take the easy way out of that conversation and to basically just tell me, you know, boys will be boys, won't they? And that was the end. And I wrote here and I remember sitting on my couch on like a Saturday morning And I wrote this paragraph. And I didn't cry a lot while writing this. Like I don't, I'm I'm very used to these experiences and I don't, um, I don't often have that big emotion come up. But writing this paragraph, I sobbed. I sobbed and kept writing. (laughs) God bless my husband. I think I was sitting on the couch and he was sitting at the kitchen table and he noticed that I was crying. Obviously, how could you not? It was loud. And, um, He just came over and sat on the couch next to me. He knew I was writing. Um, He didn't say anything or ask me to stop or whatever. He just sat there. 
And it's the paragraph that begins, I think of the version of me who was sitting in that police car. She was in so much pain. That's page 34. And it ends on, on page 35. And I wish she could have known that even before she found her ferocity, her story was worthy of being seen. And she was worthy of being believed. I love that paragraph. And then as we close the chapter, I talk about this concept of shame again. And we're going to revisit it in in coming chapters. And in the middle of page 37, I say, And so we add shame on top of our hurt. And that shame becomes a layer that hardens over time, making the hurt and therefore the overcoming harder to access. And then talking about overcoming, as the chapter ends, we have our first opportunity for reflection and action. And this was something that my editor and I felt strongly that we wanted to have these sort of reflection and action pieces. It might be a natural thing for you as the reader to reflect as you go along. Like I do that when I read, I'm always reflecting and being introspective, but it doesn't come so naturally for some. And and I wanted to just sort of um, really directly give people an opportunity to reflect. So let's let's do that now. Truth one for overcoming, forgive yourself for not seeing it coming. If you told the story of what happened to you to someone who deeply cared about you, what would they say? If you could have received comfort and validation at the time, what would that have sounded like? It's never too late to give ourselves what we need. Write it down, perhaps in the form of a letter of forgiveness to yourself. Acknowledge that no matter the circumstances or outside factors, You were not complicit in your trauma. Say it or write it to yourself until it feels true. And that was chapter one of my new book, After Trauma, out now. Join us next week where we will dive into chapter two, work to find coherence in your life story. See you next week.